Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Ngazi Azike, and thank you for tuning into More Than Medicine. This podcast is about the fight for health equity and justice, how we need to work to not just heal wounds, but truly address the root causes of hurt and distress in our communities and our nation. This episode, we're talking about addressing system issues in Chicago's divested communities with president and CEO of the Field Foundation, Mr. Daniel Ash. His foundation is responsible for collaborating with the board and staff to help Field achieve its mission, centering racial equity to achieve community empowerment through art, justice, media and storytelling, and leadership investment. Annually, the foundation, along with its strategic funding partners, distributes more than $6.5 million in grants to organizations working to address systemic issues in Chicago's divested communities. So grateful to have you here. Thank you so much for joining me, Daniel. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you. So you are leading an incredible organization. Can you please just start off by helping our audience know a little bit about you and how you got started in your career? Oh, my career has been centered around social justice, particularly racial justice. And quite frankly, the journey for me begins in my hometown of Youngstown, Ohio. I grew up in a town that, quite frankly, experienced significant economic hardship due to steel mills being shut down. So I grew up at a time when unemployment in my community, Youngstown's black community is very high. And quite frankly, I was always frustrated by what I was experiencing in my own community. So as I set out to study, attend college and graduate school, I always sort of kept that history with me and wanted to understand why my home community suffered the way it did. Fast forward, I came to Chicago after undergraduate school in Oberlin and attended the University of Chicago and studied public policy, again, with the intention of trying to understand the systems that were negatively impacting Black communities specifically and the community I'm from. And I've stayed here ever since. And my commitment to my hometown has now been transferred to my commitment to Chicago. Same issues, different city, much bigger city. No, well, Chicago is very fortunate and blessed to have you. It's a major issue in all cities, and so we're grateful that you're here. So if we really break this down, what are these neighborhoods, what are these cities lacking, and what is your specific call to action so that we can actually make these neighborhoods and cities more equitable? Well, specifically, the Field Foundation is focused on funding institutional and community sort of infrastructure that supports power building in communities that have been historically harmed, underinvested, disinvested, pick whatever word you want. (laughs) We are super focused on communities that have the greatest need. And in this city, that is Chicago's South Side, Chicago's West Side, and those communities are predominantly Black and Brown. Our goal is to support the conditions so that residents in those communities can inform and set their own agenda and that they're in a position to advance that agenda. So when you support community organizing, when you support community media, when you support community leaders, you support community sort of arts organizations, 
creative institutions, you're basically supporting the infrastructure for movement making. As I continue on my journey here at Field, we will continue that work, um, but we actually want to become even more intentional about helping these communities advance their agenda. So it's not just enough to support organizing. We as an institution want to use all forms of our capital to make sure that the issues and the ideas that come from the organizing are actually realized at the community level. It's inspiring, not for the faint-hearted, but it, it's the work that has to be done. Bringing this home to Sinai, Chicago, let's talk a little bit about how healthcare fits into this. How does a Sinai, Chicago, how do other health systems contribute and help impact this focus of the Field Foundation? Well, let me acknowledge this. I'm a former board member of Mount Sinai, and I totally understand the importance of healthcare in communities that have the greatest need. You can come at any issue, whether it's public safety, whether it's workforce development, whether it's education. If a community is not healthy, the residents of that community are, are unable to fully realize the opportunities that may be available, assuming those opportunities are available. So I see our work as absolutely parallel, if you will, to the work of Mount Sinai. One thing that I've noticed when I spent my first year and I just marked my first year anniversary here at Field, I spent most of my first year listening to community members. I'm asking, like, what should we be doing more of? What are the issues that are most pressing for you? And time and time again, access to healthcare, this is no surprise, was a leading issue. Again, this goes back, Doctor, to this point that I made earlier. Oftentimes when people fund community organizing, they think just about community activism, right? So they think about big ideas like defund the police, the abolitionist movement. And I'm not making a critique on those movements, but what you hear from community members are usually much more practical, tangible needs. We want our schools to be better. We want, we want to be able to pay our medical bills. We want access to jobs. So as I continue my journey, while I want to be in that intellectual space and continue to drive public discourse in the right direction, I also want to make sure that as a leader of philanthropy, we're partnering with communities to deliver on what they need most right now. And if we do that, the, my assumption is that we create the conditions for the movement for system change to fully take root. Sometimes I feel that my colleagues, we talk about system reform and it becomes a very intellectual sort of discussion. And the people who are actually being harmed or suffering or in need, they're talking about practical things. And I firmly believe that we need to do both. We need to transform systems. But first and foremost, we need to meet the immediate needs. And that's where institutions like Sinai and other safety net hospitals come in. You're seeing everything on the front line and philanthropy of all forms should make itself available to support the infrastructure that you're needing. No, I appreciate it. I mean, what I heard was basically like, we can all talk the talk, but we got to be ready to really walk the walk and have those practical, tangible, like boots on the ground solutions to some of these really harrowing issues. So when I think about all this money that you give to organizations, tell me 
who are the kind of organizations that that qualify? And and do you mind sharing some of the organizations that you're proud to partner with and some of the boots on the ground work, those tangible needs that are being addressed by some of the organizations you partner with? Absolutely. So again, we fund in four distinct intersectional portfolios. So we have a leadership portfolio where we fund leaders. We fund community organizing in our justice portfolio. We fund community-centered media platforms in our media and storytelling platform. And we fund creative-making institutions in our arts portfolio. When I think about like what we do best or when we're at our best is when we fund organizing that has a very, very specific goal. So it's not just organizing for the sake of organizing, but it's organizing in its truest form, like gathering residents, identifying needs, and then organizing to address those needs. For example, the Association of the Southeast is an organization that organizes on the southeast side of Chicago, far southeast side. There was a polluter that was trying to move into their, an industrial polluter trying to move into a community. And the organizations that we funded actually helped residents fight that head on and actually stopped the polluter from getting the license to actually set up shop in their backyard. What's even more equally important, I should say, to that defensive posture that the organizing took was that the same institution is providing the type of network and navigation to other resources, right? So during the pandemic, for example, these the organizing institutions were the same institutions that were standing up mutual aid networks and programs. They were the same organizations that were working with all both public and private organizations to make sure that folks had access to emergency assistance, whether it's cash payments or access to other supports. So again, the organizations that we fund, we call them organizing and that's what they do. But many of them, when they're at their best, are anchor institutions that have significant amount of trust built with the community that they're serving. And in most cases, the people who lead these organizations are from the community. So that's one example of how we show up and support that infrastructure. What I want us to do more of as we move forward is as the agenda gets set, I want us as a philanthropy to use all forms of our capital, knowledge capital, social capital, political capital to help advance that agenda. It's my belief that historically, while we funded the organizing, I'm very proud that these agendas or community plans were developed. Rather than lean in, we stepped back and hoped that the agenda or the plan would be implemented. I think that's where philanthropy has fallen short. Like We need to be there to help actually realize the dreams that residents have in these communities. And is that maybe where that focus on media and storytelling becomes a focus? being able to make sure that the ecosystem accurately represents what's actually happening and that it's fair. Can you tell me how that portion feeds into this important work? Absolutely. I think about media in two ways. One, communities, all communities, regardless of the economic profile of a community, all communities need access to good information. And I know as a public health leader, you know that (laughs) in the most profound way, right? Our supportive media is designed to make sure that these communities that we're targeting have infrastructure that's going to bring good information, fact-based information, thoughtful reporting into their community. 
In addition, these community-centered media platforms also are better positioned to reflect authentic narratives that exist in those communities. And note that I said narratives plural. There's authentic stories and perspectives and frames that emerge from these communities. And our investment in that infrastructure is designed to make sure those, that information is reflected to the rest of society. One way to unpack that is to understand this. If we fund community-centered media because the larger media platforms need it to be at their best. So WBZ is better when there's a really, really highly trusted, well-resourced community newspaper or community media platform in a local community. The broadcast news, local and national and regional, they are better when there's good inf reporting and information and data gathering happening at the local level. Oftentimes we think about the bigger players first and the smaller players second. I actually see it in reverse. Like the bigger platforms that have greater reach need these, this infrastructure in order to make sure that they're doing a good job reflecting the community. So we, our bias is to focus our investment at the community level when it comes to media, because we want those, the agenda setting to be informed by good information. And when the agendas that come from communities are set, we want to make sure that they're accurately and authentically and consistently reflected in larger media platforms. No, that's really powerful. And I really appreciate that the understanding that you're helping to create this very important bi-directional flow of information. You want to make sure that the good information comes in and then at the same time that those authentic stories and narratives are pushed out. That is so key. That is so key that both parts are happening. So as you think about some of the great work that you have been able to support, what are the kinds of stories that you have seen told that maybe wouldn't have been told if not for that kind of infrastructure that you are helping to build? Well, there's so many. I'm trying to think, what would be a great example? Um, I'll use one that I know will resonate with you and where your career has been recently. We fund consistently from the time they launched the tribe.com, media platform created by two black women from Chicago, sort of rooted in Chicago. One's a filmmaker, one's a journalist. And they've created infrastructure to authentically reflect black Chicago. They're committed to serving this very specific community. During the pandemic, there was a lot of reporting about parties that were thrown during the early days of the pandemic. And the initial framing of those parties was that there's just a bunch of reckless Black youth disregarding messages that they were receiving from leaders like yourselves and your peers. The tribe and its team they dug into the stories and they were able to determine that, and I'm oversimplifying here, but that quite frankly, the folks didn't have access to the information that was being delivered through other channels. And they weren't just ignoring public health messages, that they truly were sort of outside those information ecosystems that we tend to rely on when it comes to delivering information. I use that example because if they had not been present and had the capacity to do the second day, third day story, the public's perception, broadly speaking, would have just been anchored to that idea that in this case, young adults, black youth were just 
like quite frankly, being anti-social and their behavior, anti-system, recklessly. And it was much more complicated and nuanced. More recently, with the recent mayoral election, the tribe and other community platforms, I think really were seeing before mainstream press were unseeing that the movement that was actually being cultivated to actually drive Mayor Johnson to victory. I use that example, again, not to make this a political conversation, but to underscore the fact that the community press was by design closer to the community and was able to see things earlier than those who aren't as proximate as they are. Again, the examples here illustrate the point that I would say news gathering and reporting is best when the folks in the newsroom have a deep understanding of the community that they're covering. And I would also add another point that's equally important. There has to be a deep understanding of like a mutual trust with the reporters or the documenters like in community. And so places like the tribe, and again, there are many others, they spend a lot of time developing and fostering that trust with the community because they're seen as part of the community. I mean, and again, their work dates back to a long tradition in Black and BIPOC communities. When I think about Chicago's history with the Chicago Defender, Community Center Press, going back to a platform mm -hmm. like that one, the Defender always developed a high level of trust because the reporters were seen as reporters, but they were seen as reporters who were going to not only do good reporting, but be fair and be trustworthy. No, I think there's so much wisdom in that because, as people will always say, there are always at least two sides to a story. And so without being able to get the richness to see these other sides, another quote that I thought about as you were saying this was the author Chinua Achebe, who said that until the lions have their own historians, the history of the hunt will always glorify the hunter, right? Exactly. And so you just have to have representation to make sure you're gathering all of the story. So I, that's brilliant. <laughs> and unfortunately, even in modern times to this day, we don't have representation, adequate BIPOC, particularly for black community and brown communities. We don't have adequate representation in newsrooms. And that creates the challenge that you see in quite frankly, how we report on issues, be it public safety, be it pandemic, be it healthcare broadly or school reform broadly, those issues don't get adequately covered and reported because in many cases, the reporters don't have authentic and long-lasting connection to those communities. And again, I think a more inclusive newsrooms actually makes the entire newsroom stronger, not just for Black and Brown communities, but for all communities. Yeah, no, for sure. And then I really want to talk about some of the specific goals that are top of mind when we think about what you're doing with the Leaders for a New Chicago Award or the Field Foundation Grant Fellowship. Who are we thinking about for that and what are we trying to achieve there? Well, our leadership program, which is a wonderful partnership we have with the MacArthur Foundation, is designed to do exactly what the name implies. It's we want to support those leaders who are shaping Chicago's future. We call the program Leaders for a New Chicago. And sometimes when people hear or see that the title of the program, they think new leaders for Chicago. So they think the program is designed to support young emerging leaders. The program actually is designed to support the network of leaders, both young and older, 
or as they say, more seasoned leaders mm -hmm. who are working to shape the city's future. Our bias with the program is to lift up those leaders that are working at the community level. And in some cases, tirelessly, year after year, without much recognition. And so we offer support to them, no strings attached, $25,000 awards. That's matched by a $25,000 award to their host organization. And the point is to, A, acknowledge their work, right? Acknowledge them, see them, and make sure that we lift up their stories. Two, we want to make sure that they have access to resources to, quite frankly, do whatever they need to do to take care of themselves and stay connected to the work. Oftentimes, you know, when I think about some of the more grand programs, be it MacArthur's Fellows Program, commonly known as the sort of genius grant, we wait until someone sort of has these big innovative moments and we acknowledge it. And again, those programs are important. So I'm not saying they shouldn't exist, but when it comes to supporting leadership infrastructure in a city at the community level, you have to have the courage to lean in and find those leaders that are doing the work. And then as a philanthropy, use our position, our power to make sure that these leaders are connected to one another. One of, I think, our most pressing challenges as a city is that too many of our leaders Again, motivated in the right way, passionate about their work, passionate about their communities. But oftentimes they don't have the relationships with other leaders in other communities. So as we identify with our community partners, these leaders, we're very intentional about creating opportunities for these communities, these leaders to be connected to one another, bridging communities. And our hope that over time that these network of leaders will take the responsibility of building bonds of trust, bonds of affection, so that as community challenges emerge, or more broadly, challenges emerge to confront the entire city, we're better positioned to work with one another to meet and solve for those challenges. That's phenomenal. I mean, I love the idea of bringing those individuals that have this shared passion for creating the Chicago that it could be and really trying to get that multiplication effect, right? Because if you bring one leader and another leader, you get more than 2x, right? Because the synergy between them and the ideas and the span and the scope of what they can do when they put their heads together is bigger than just the additive sum of what the two of them would be doing in their separate silos. So that's fantastic. Absolutely. It's like an emotional multiplier effect. That's right. Like, That's right. We think about multiplier effect and business and whatnot, but like the emotional energy that comes out of the community leadership, which is usually grounded in some level of organizing, is the potential of the city. The potential for doing collective good is enhanced, undoubtedly. That's awesome. So can you speak tangibly about some of the big impacts that you are seeing as you, whether it's thinking about things that are moving us towards this new Chicago or some improvements that helping us get to that more racially equitable Chicago, what can we put our finger on and say, yep, I see this, I see the progress? Well, here's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing community leaders who bring an organizing sort of frame to the table they're doing more than just agitating, right? They're actually taking responsibility for driving the type of development that they want to see in their communities. 
One quick example is Rage and Inglewood. When I think about the leadership of Rage, they're organizers in a very traditional sense. They're resource navigators. Like, so they're the folks that people go to figure out how to access healthcare systems, how to understand health and human service systems, public benefit systems. But they're also taking on development projects, economic development projects. So you have the leadership of Rage buying homes, developing homes, and selling those homes to residents in their community. You have organizers in our portfolio are asking me about how to access capital so that they can actually buy the blighted building business or like buildings on a business corridor because they want to take responsibility for owning it and developing it so that there's a collective community benefit. One person I remember saying recently and saying, we want to decide who goes into the little shopping plaza that's like near our community. And so what's powerful about that is that residents aren't just interested in informing quality of life plans. They most certainly want to do that, but they actually want to take lead responsibility for implementing those plans with a very clear understanding that as our communities develop and improve, and evolve, we want to maintain ownership, right? Others are welcomed in, so they're not putting barriers onto their community, but they're saying like, if we don't want to just develop a plan and hope that it happens, we want to be at the fore, be at the lead in pushing the plan to implementation. And again, underscoring the idea that we want to reclaim space and own it. And if we do that, and we do that with intention, We'll make sure that the communities, the collective communities that have actually experienced significant amounts of harm benefit from the progress that everyone's advocating for. Well, that's inspirational, right? We want to go beyond just flashing the flashlight and saying, hey, here's the problem, but actually going into the problem, you know, yes, you got to highlight it first, but then, okay, what are we going to, let's roll up our sleeves, what are we going to do about it, right? Whether it's buying blighted buildings and developing it into a community center or whatever, we've got to finish it out. We got it with execution and implementation. I love it. You are doing such incredible work and spearheading such incredible work and just supporting people in doing the incredible work that they're already doing in the community. So I, I'm really grateful for the spotlight that we've been able to shed on your work and your life's work. So thank you, Daniel, so much for joining me and thank you for your very intense efforts in addressing inequities. I am so looking forward to hearing more about the ongoing work of the Field Foundation. And I just, I want to thank you so much for this time today. Well, I'm happy to be here and I'm equally thankful for you and your leadership in your current role, your previous role, and I'm sure any future endeavor that you take on, you're going to have an indelible impact on our city. Thank you so much. Stay well. Thank you for listening to More Than Medicine with Dr. Ngazi Azike. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to Sinai Chicago's YouTube channel, as well as follow at Sinai Chicago on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram for information on upcoming podcasts. Until next time.